are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are... Rachel Jackson, Rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And a trait that I see in myself that I can trace back is dark hair coloring, which I get from my father's father, who was Iraqi Jewish. Kendra Holtmore, PhD candidate at Boston University. (laughs) And my uh, (laughs) trait that I've inherited from my family is having only two wisdom teeth. Ian Benz, associate professor of elementary science education at UNC Charlotte. And the trait that I get uh, from my dad's side of the family, from the Benz side, is the shape of my upper lip. We call it the Ben's lip. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I am 2% Neanderthal on my mom's side, and maybe more on my dad's side, but we haven't tested that. And I like to think that's why I am so comfortable in the cold and really appreciate a good (laughs) mammoth burger. Um, But we're talking about genetics a little bit today because we are entering into a brand new mini-series, broadly speaking, about medical ethics, but divided up into the various life stages of of being a human. So we're going to start with birth, as we we often do as humans. Um, Most of us, I think, start with being born. Um, moving into puberty, which most of us don't want to remember, then into pregnancy, general issues of age, and then end of life. And so we're going to start with the start today. And as I was thinking about all of the different, all of the different different issues connected with, uh, with birth, with being born, with all of these new medical procedures around testing and neonatal surgeries and DNA and knowing how much Neanderthal you are, I went and I got a haircut. And the guys in the barbershop just randomly started talking about this stuff. But like... (laughs) I'll try to frame it for you. So I'm sitting there. And one of my favorite parts about going to get my hair cut is that I don't have to talk to anyone. And I, I get that at, at barbershops and not quite at salons. So I go there to just sit and have this Zen moment with the clippers and enjoy my ASMR experience. And so the the guy, the barber next to me says, oh, hey, we're having a boy. And everyone in the barbershop is super excited. This is his first kid. And wow, I didn't even realize your girl was pregnant, man. That's awesome. How did you find out so early? And he's like, oh, well, we did that test, that blood test where uh, you can tell like the gender of the kid and they're testing for autism and all that stuff. And then this guy from across the bar, across the barbershop is like, man, that test is BS. They can't tell if your kid's going to be autistic. And then he's like, yeah, man, they totally can. And he's like, well, why would you even want that mess? What are you going to do? And he's like, well, you know, I want to be prepared in case my kid's going to be special needs. And he's like, whatever, man. He's going to be what he's going to be. Well, what are you going to do? Read some books? You don't read books. He's like, I read books. You don't know me. And he's like, you know what? They said that my boy was going to be autistic, and he came out just fine. He's like the smartest kid in his class. And the other guy was like, yeah, most autistic people are super smart. He probably is autistic. And he's like, there's nothing wrong with being autistic. And I'm sitting here like, man, I just wanted to get my hair cut. And <laughs> I want to go to your barbershop. Like, I now I want to say something because now I've been thinking all about, about genetic testing and neonatal care and epigenetics and all of this. And and that's when the guy was like, well, do you have anyone that's autistic in your family? And he's like, no, man, I'm not. My mom's not. Dad's not. Grandparents not. I mean, my sister is, but like, that's just because mom had like really stressful pregnancy. And so uh, my sister came out autistic because of that. And then at that point, I was like, man, that 
now I really feel like I need to say something, but I didn't because I hadn't done my research yet for the episode. Had I done the research for the episode, I'd be like, man, stop blaming your mom for all your problems. You are not Sigmund Freud. It is not <laughs> entirely the mother's fault for everything that come, that is wrong with a child. Also, let's reframe that a little bit, that being autistic does not mean that there's something wrong with you, that some of the most important humans that have ever lived were on the autism spectrum. Yay, neurodiversity! Amen for neurodiversity. If we were all neurotypical, what a boring world that would be. Yep. So I got to thinking. I got to thinking about what is the purpose of testing um, for these sorts of issues beforehand? What is the point of knowing your genetic predisposition to things, how how much of an effect does it actually have, like what kind of a life the mother lives while she's pregnant? Uh, obviously, we know things like if mom is drinking heavily or taking drugs, then that's going to be passed on to the baby. But like, what if mom has a really stressful job or isn't sleeping very well? Or like, how much is that messing up that baby's life? And I mean, I, I remember how stressed out my wife and I were, um, her more than me, because I felt like my stress didn't affect the baby. But she was like, man, she was so scared that the actions that she took during this time were going to ruin her baby's life. Mm. And what pressure to put on a person. And do we actually have any science to back that up whatsoever? So the answer is yes. Also, no, but mostly no, but also yes. Because the field of epigenetics is still fairly recent, and um, there's a lot of controversy around it. And I should say what I mean when I say epigenetics, is that you have DNA inside of you that is the building block that makes you who you are. It is your blueprint. There is a series of, of chemicals that all, when work together, make you the wonderful human being that you are. Now, attached to those are also these little um, chemical markers that can turn things on and off on it. Um, I remember reading a while back about some scientists that were trying to recreate a dinosaur out of a chicken. I think we talked about this during the Jurassic yeah. Park episode and that they're trying to reverse engineer it by like finding the parts of the chicken's genome that have to do with feathers and then putting a little chemical marker on there to turn it off so that then they don't grow feathers and maybe they can find one where they can get teeth back again, where like we can tell a lot about you based on your genome and the things that you have on and off on there. And so certain stressors in life, certain aspects, sunlight even, can affect which parts of the genes are expressed and which parts are not. And so that's what we mean by when we say epigenetics. None of this stuff is going to change your genome, but it is going to change how it is expressed, whether the light switch is on or off in the different parts of you. Did I get that fairly accurate, Rachel the chemist? Yeah, I think uh, the only thing that I would also, not the only thing, I would also add that these things can be turned on and off, not just in the neonatal state, but throughout a person's life. So for example, um, one of the things that were, we, again, royal we, not actually any of us we, um, are looking at is addictions, right? That how do you know if this is, if you're going to be addicted or not addicted, or if that's, you know, there's, there can be a marker, but if you've, how do you know if you're going to be addicted to cocaine if you've never taken cocaine, right? Like, so perhaps you need to have some cocaine before that marker gets switched on. You don't know one way or the other. So same thing with mm. um, other drugs, including drugs that we consider legal, such as alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, etc. Right? Like how your body reacts to those things, you will not necessarily know the epigenetic outcome until you're exposed to it. So I just want to add that piece. It's not simply a neonatal, neonatal um, field of study. Sure. Can I ask a, a clarifying question to Rachel um, and or Zach? Just that like, before we get too much further into the conversation, can can one of you describe 
more particularly, like when we t- when we talk about chemical markers being turned on and off, like what does that mean in a little more detail? Like what what's the chemical marker made out of and how does it attach itself to the genes that we're talking about? So there are three different, and let me just pull this up so I make sure I say it right. Yeah, and, and also just as an FYI, we, I... Um... I have several articles that we'll be putting in the show notes for people that want to read a little bit more about this, um, in addition to our explaining. So let me, so let me let me make a different analogy and take it out of take it away from things that most of us are not comfortable in, right? Like we're not going to talk the four things that make up DNA, right? We're not talking about base pairs. We're not talking about those things, right? Most people are not super comfortable with that language. So let me make an analogy to say your home, right? My home right now, I'm currently in my bedroom and I have curtains and I also have lamps and light switches, right? How much light do I have in my room right now? That depends if I have turned on my light switch and that depends if I have opened my curtains. Why would I open my curtains? Because I want more light. Well, did I know that I was allergic to sunlight? Not until I opened my curtains. Right. So something has to happen. So it's already there. It's something then that changes that says now, now this thing has happened. So for some, it's a methylate. So if we then look at the actual DNA, it's a methylation process or a demethylation process. It's adding or subtracting these things that are already there and turning them to a different form which means similar, which is why the light switch works really well because it's always there or curtains are always there. It's just whether or not you open, open them or close them. And so again, part of that is methylization, um, is, is one of the big ones. Um, so that's what I would add. That's, there's a, there's a big one there in terms of smoking, smoking cigarettes is a big switch a big activator of turning on things that will or will not happen in one's body. And when that happens, one of those things is a methylation that happens on, in this particular case, it's the AHRR gene. Um, But given that smoking is often a choice, right? I'm not saying it's not an addictive choice, but there is a choice there. Most people don't do it when they're born and people have the ability to not do it. So you can actually monitor how much of this epigenetic change is happening in a person who, right, before they smoked, while they're smoking, and former smokers, and really what it looks like. So that's a really clear example when you can look at an adult what's happening. So the DNA methylization is one of three ways that uh, this process can happen. The other way is through modifications, uh, uh, histone modifications, which is the the actual um, framework of the DNA, like the think of it like the scaffolding of your DNA. Uh, the other way is microRNA expression, which is something that I have a really cool experiment to talk about in a bit. Um, that, as far as we know. These three ways seem to be how um, how these genes get expressed in different ways, but some combination of three. It's not usually just one or the other, and there could be other mechanisms as well. It's not fully understood exactly how it happens, um, just that it does. And all of the, all of this is also way above my head. So I just want to acknowledge that I'm not a biologist. And a lot of these words I am also learning for the first time along with you, fair listeners. lot of the early, uh, just almost intuitional epigenetic studies looked at the way that babies develop in the womb while their mother is experiencing certain types of trauma, right? Like famine or um, displacement or something like that. And 
I think we've kind of known intrinsically that that sort of thing affects the child for thousands of years. But it's always been an issue of mom's fault. So what's really fascinating about some of this study recently is they've done all these genetic studies on sperm because it's a lot easier to study than eggs. And so there was this one study that was done, that was published in 2013 in Nature, which was fascinating and kind of was a, made a huge splash and a ton of controversy on both sides and got picked up by all kinds of news outlets and misrepresented in so many different ways. It's one of those groundbreaking sort of studies where extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So here's how, it, here's how they laid out the experiment. They took a group of mice, and because scientists hate mice, they, <laughs> they would expose them to a, uh, a chemical called uh, acetophenone, which is just a, it's a scent. They use it in artificial smells all the time. It smells vaguely of cherry blossoms. They used that scent because they know exactly which odorant receptor in the olfactory uh, bulb it corresponds to. So they don't have to guess where it is. They know exactly where it is. And every time they expose them to that smell, they electrocuted their feet because they hate mice. And so they did this enough such that when they would spray the gas, the mouse would get terrified. So they traumatized the poor mouse that they, they correlated that smell with being electrocuted. So then... They bred that mouse and had that mouse be raised by a totally different parent. So they, there, was, there was no acculturation whatsoever and exposed that mouse to that smell and found that that mouse also kind of freaked out by it. Yeah, the second, not, gen the second generation mouse. Yeah, yeah, but not other smells. And they even, they looked in the DNA of the sperm of that mouse, that second generation, and found markers on that part of their DNA. And after it had, they, they um, euthanized the poor thing, they autopsied the brain and found that that odorant receptor that is, corresponds to that particular smell had more receptor cells in it than other smells. So that mouse was born more attuned to that smell that its father was traumatized by despite having not been raised by that mouse or having any being taught anything about it. But then they bred that mouse and found that the next generation, so the grandson of the first one, still held those markers and was overly receptive to that smell. So three generations of mice were traumatized by the same uh, traumatic experience, and it, was, it changed how their bodies developed. Now, it didn't change their DNA, and that's important. It did not change their DNA. It changed how their DNA was expressed. So that, that expression caused that part of their olfactory bulb to make more cells so they'd be more sensitive to that awful smell that hurt their grandfather. And so it's important, and this is what the news people got wrong, was that the future generations weren't scared of the smell it didn't ruin them. It, it wasn't that the fear was passed down three generations or the trauma was passed down three generations, but the effects of it, the sensitivity to it was passed down three generations. As, as, you, know, as you would expect, this is evolutionarily helpful that if some environmental trauma is introduced into, into an area, you want your future generations to be able to avoid the thing. And so they're adapting in real time to this awful thing that is happening to them. And then a couple of years later, and this is the super hopeful part, they and a number of other people redid the experiment. But this time, they exposed a separate group of, of mice to the smell, traumatized them, did the whole thing, that awful thing that they, because they hate mice, and then they stopped electrocuting them. But they would still give them the smell. But they wouldn't electrocute them. And of course, the mouse would be scared and they'd be scared. And But eventually they stopped being scared of the smell. 
And then that next generation was did not have those markers. They did not have a larger olfactory bulb. They, they did not have the hmm. predisposition to fearing or being more receptive to that. So in essence, one of those, uh, that generation overcame it by being exposed to it without the negative uh, traumatic effect attached to it. And it changed. Their epigenetic markers changed in their sperm so that it no longer passed that down to the next generation. Like like they basically said, hey, this was trauma, but it's not actually trauma anymore. So let's let's rewind, let's rewire ourselves again to say this activity, this scent is safe. Right. Which, again, makes sense from an evolutionary perspective that now things have adapted in the other way. And so now our genes don't have to protect us from that anymore. Um, And I'm trying so hard not to draw really strong conclusions from this because, my goodness gracious, will this preach? (laughs) This feels intuitively correct, right? I mean, how much of our, in our, in our scriptures, in our religious traditions are around generational sin, generational punishment, generational trauma, the sins of the father that go down seven generations. Um, Like how much of, of overcoming that is baked into our religious stories that we tell. And I want this to be true, but it is very much in the infancy. And we do not understand the mechanisms by which this would even happen. Because when when a sperm and an egg, you know, get together and do their do their fun thing, most of the epigenetic markers are stripped from the DNA of the sperm. And then it all gets reconfigured um, inside. And so it shouldn't work. So there has to be another mechanism that's at play here that's making it happen, or it's all just wishful thinking on the part of the researchers, and it's all BS, and we want it to be true because it feels true. So I need to make that disclaimer right here because epigenetics feels like it would solve so many problems and explain scientifically so much of what we experience, but it also might not. It might just be wish fulfillment. Right. Stop blaming your grandparents for things that are happening in your life. Right. Like we don't we don't need to do that either. But yeah, I, I'm looking at this from a slightly from a similar perspective, but perhaps a bit differently. Um, not being able to to wish away things that we see happening. But these these experiments are so tightly controlled, looking for one tiny thing to then make the leap that it would go to us and we could then identify all of our generational trauma through these things to make that leap feels exceedingly large. First of all, right? Like it's one smell, one type of creature, three gender, like it's, it's so tiny, so narrow in its scope. So that would be my disclaimer. Um, and so when we then move to say humans, which is, uh, I think, where our narcissism takes us. Hmm. Why does it matter? What, right, this question also of, if you go seeking for something, if you ask a question, what are you going to do with the answer? So go back to your barbershop people, why are they asking, like, why did you do the blood test? What are you looking? Oh, to get prepared. For what? You don't know. You don't. Okay. So barring the incorrect understanding that this can tell you autism or not autism, um, which has not been proven at all. So let's dispel that. But if that were the case, autism itself expresses itself in so very vastly different ways that a person can't actually be prepared for that. One cannot prepare themselves for some of these traits that we may or may not be looking for. It's very different than straight up genetic traits, right? Straight up, you know, this person has different genes, which causes them to have 
Tay-Sachs, which causes them to have um, CF. Um, that cough was timed appropriately. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> those, are, those are very different genetic questions that we're looking at. Right. So yeah. why are we asking these questions? What will it actually give us? Because if you ask the question, you have to do something with the answer. Well, and with that, you know, maybe it reminded me of when we learned that Anne was pregnant and throughout the pregnancy, I remember just kind of asking one day, so are we going to do those genetic tests? Because I didn't really know anything about them, right? I mean, you just kind of hear about them and stuff. And I just was curious. Like, it didn't really matter to me either way. And I remember she kind of said the same thing that you were kind of talking about, Rachel, was that what would we do with that information? Like, is that going to determine if we, you know, would end a pregnancy or not? And I was like, yeah, and for our, you know, purposes, probably not. And she's like, then, yeah, there's really no point for us to do that. You know, would, so, and that was just, that was our decision. That was our choice is that was the decision we made. And so, yeah. And it was not a long conversation. I don't remember it being something that we really discussed at length to figure out what should we do here or not. It was more just a casual conversation and that was the choice we made. So, Well, if you can identify in your family, um, a history of dysfunction and you can say like, yeah, uh, grand, great-grandfather was a prisoner of war and came home different. And, and then he had kids, and those kids, they had a rough go of things. And then kind of our family ever since then has been battling with, with abuse and dysfunction and um, addiction and all of these things. And if you understand that, you know, a part of that is upbringing, right? Hurting people hurt people. But a part of that, if you can identify it, it could be epigenetically transmitted from great-grandfather's prisoner of war time. And you could identify that yourself. Would that be something that you would find empowering to say, this is something that is within me, but I can overcome it. And I have studies on poor traumatized mice to show that I don't have to this can end with me and it doesn't have to go to my children or does it then just run the risk of, of creating self-fulfilling prophecies that, well, now I know that my family is just messed up and it's in my genes. So there's nothing I can do to stop it. Or it gives an excuse that now I'm off the hook because it's, you know, great grandpa's fault. In a, in a sort of lightened mood comment, uh, who Framed Roger Rabbit in the movie from a very long time ago. Such a great movie. There's a line in there where um, the female, <laughs> the female Jessica, she says, you know, in her very sultry voice, you know, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn this way. Right? Like this, <laughs> is she just saying that it's, it's not in her power? Now, I feel like I've taken up a lot of airspace, so I'd like to hear from a few of the other people here how this strikes you, right? Yeah, no, I just I just find epigenetics so confusing. So I just, like, don't... Um, I don't know. The um, A couple of things I was thinking about, though, is one, just, like, the issue of people choosing to get all the testing done when they're pregnant or not pregnant. Um I, I've never had kids, so I'm not speaking out of experience here, but just like I've known people who have had like difficult circumstances in terms of like health, health problem, like the decisions to make uh, testing a priority when you're pregnant don't have to just be entirely about like what your future child is going to deal with or not deal with. But I think there um, is also like a legitimate concern about wanting to know what your child, what the state of your child will be, say it that way, because that can mean a lot of different things. Um, because you might not be able to prepare for 
uh, you know, what, what they will experience, but if there are other people that you're already taking care of, or if you're like trying to take care of yourself or a partner, um, I do think there's something valuable and, and I'm not trying to diminish, like, obviously there's a lot of really tricky ethical considerations that are mm -hmm. like inherent to this discussion. But I think that it's just about like wanting to feel control and it doesn't really matter uh, like, I, I don't, I don't know that you have to do something with the answer if you ask the question. And maybe, maybe not doing something with the answer is like a form of doing something with the answer. <laughs> or, you know, like maybe it's just that the psychological comfort or illusion that you get that you have control is what you're doing with the answer to those questions mm -hmm. about testing. And honestly, I don't know whether or not that's something that I would want personally, because there is a part of me that thinks I would be like, forget it. Like, let's just jump right in and see what happens. But there's also a significant part of me that would want to know everything I possibly could, not because it would make, make me do anything differently, but I love having the illusion of control over life <laughs> and my life. <laughs> and so, you know, if I can get that um, from from these tests, then that that feels really appealing. And I imagine that there are a lot of people for whom that yeah. uh, that feels really comforting. And it's not that's not to say that, you know, the comfort we receive from this kind of like genetic testing is worth the other risks that come with it ethically. And, you know, like there's, I have, I have this fear that we're heading into a, you know, we'll basically be, just be living out a dystopian novel plot in like 30 years. Um, but like, I get it. I get the appeal of wanting to have like, so hopeful, <laughs> wanting to have that control and just know, like, knowledge it's so appealing and it doesn't matter i think for a lot of people it doesn't i don't know that people are really thinking through what their uh behavioral changes would be it's just mm -hmm. like if you can peek behind the curtain and see what's behind it it's just like curiosity a lot of times um and so i i i tend to think that that is actually a pretty significant driver and like motivator to do this kind of thing and um and that that's even though that's true that doesn't mean that we should stop asking these other like really significant ethical questions about you know at what cost does does this um knowledge will like how how will this change us in the future um but yeah i don't know i just that's kind of what i've been thinking about well and it's still no guarantee all right, so say like these tests could show something or, you know, whatever level they can show or something like that. But still, it's not like, uh, as far as I understand, that it's, oh, you get this test and it's a definitive answer either way what what would happen. They can tell within, I think, 99% certainty whether or not your child has Down syndrome. So, okay. so I think there's a, the, the big difference, and this is where I'll just jump in, the difference between epigenetics and genetics. Yeah. Genetics they can tell pretty easily, right? And they're high, highly accurate. Just like the genetics of um, an anatomical gender, right? They're, that's pretty clear what that is. Um, and I'm being very specific uh, that it's anatomical gender. Or, right. Uh, no, no. Uh, genetic testing, not ultrasound testing, right? Ultrasounds, then it's like most of the time, it's more the you know, when you're looking at an ultrasound, is there a penis? Is there not a penis? And so there can be something wrong with that ultrasound. But if you do the blood testing, there's no question, again, from the sex perspective, right? Is this XY or, or um, XX, right? From that perspective, not talking uh, the gender that we feel. Um, th those are Those are highly accurate. Epigenetics, not. Right. Epigenetics is like, for example, if we take this idea that and we go back to our grandparents, you know, your, your grandmother, not you, right, 
a grandmother was alcoholic and your father is alcoholic are you going to be alcoholic and and then there was nothing else going on right there was no abuse there was nothing else it's just this person was alcoholic can you determine if you yourself will then be um addicted and changed by alcohol or are you one of the people that can just take a drink and totally be fine with like that level that question and for the most part that's where it's not clear and what are you going to do with that information so and that that's for me one of the places where we could be positive about it of saying okay if i see some epigenetical markers as well as the the nurture part of this alcohol i have seen happen do i then this third generation choose to have alcohol in my life or do I choose not to? And do I then, if I choose to, am I a little bit more heightened that something could be amiss, right? That's something that my reaction may not be the reaction that keeps me in control, right? Kendra was talking about liking this ability to control, right? That we want to have that. And alcohol is one of those things that doesn't allow you to be in control usually. So if you then see yourself going down that path, are you capable of saying, ah, this, this is not the reaction that I'm looking for. And I see this history. I can stop this. So where I'm coming from is a, if we have this knowledge, using it wisely and not presuming that it's black and white. Yeah, I do think I I might have uh, confused our um, terminology I when I because I said gene- epigenetics is so confusing, and then I just started talking about genetic testing. So sorry yeah, if that and confused I did that too. anyone. <laughs> Both are very confusing. So I knew a guy. Um, uh, he his mother drank heavily when she was pregnant, and he was born with a fetal alcohol syndrome, and so he's lived his whole life in a group home, and not able to function on his own. And I gave him a part-time job at the thrift store I used to run. And he, I love the guy. He was as sincere as can be and was just, (laughs) he had a heart of gold. And he felt like he was paying for his mother's sins. Oh. And that his life was a sort of punishment for her sins. And there was this, mix up of just the consequences of a person's actions or traumas or addictions and then a moral component to it of the why, right? Like, why did this happen? Well, obviously now I'm paying for the sins of someone before me. And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that shows up in almost every religion in the world. And we all do it, that we think we're paying for something as if there's some cosmic weight that needs to be counterbalanced. And there's a story in which some people bring a, uh, a man to Jesus who was blind from the time he was born. So if he is blind as a result of being punished for something and he was blind at birth, it couldn't have been his sin, right? He couldn't have been retroactively cursed. So therefore, it must have been the sins of his parents, right? So who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus looked at him and he was like, "Uh, I mean, neither. This man was born blind so that you could shut the hell up, essentially. And then he healed the guy and was like, stop thinking in these terms. Sometimes things just happen. And it's not somebody's moral fault. Nobody's being punished because they're suffering in the world. Um, but suffering in the world exists, and I'm going to try to eliminate as much of it as possible. And how about you do that too, instead of wasting your time trying to find blame for things? I really, I appreciate that reading. Right? I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that story. Um, I'm not super versed in stories of the Christian <laughs> Bible. Um, I mean, that's it, my translation. Jesus doesn't clearly, say "shut the hell up." Clearly. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know when looking through the the Jewish lens when we get to those passages, right? Because they certainly appear in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It's like, yeah, four generations is what it says. 
but there's also the 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 flip side of it that the righteous shall have a thousand generations hmm. um right that that if you're really good a thousand generations will also be really good and so so there's a couple of reads there the first is um there's an end, right? A thousand is just a thousand generations is an absurd number, right? None of us can really conceptualize of that, that value. So, okay. So it really just means forever. If you're righteous, your kin shall be righteous. And if you're sinful, it'll end, right? Four generations, you're dead, right? For the most part, we don't know four generations as adults. So by that point, once you're dead, then the, then the following generation will have the ability to choose themselves. Hmm. So it's not a perpetual, um, it's not a perpetual state. It's not a, uh, it, it's not for all time. So that, that's one read. Again, still don't love this read because it still does blame previous generations. Then there's another section in the Talmud, which talks about these passages, which basically says, ah, yes, four generations only if the son, because remember the Talmud is completely misogynistic and only talks about men, um, unless you know women has have a fault, and then they'll talk about it. it. Says ah, it's only four generations if the son of the first person continues in his father's footsteps, which basically says actually it's only four generations if you yourself participate. If you don't break the cycle, then it will continue for a little bit longer. So if you, and you can break the cycle, you can, you know, if we look at the, the big 10 commandments, number five is honor your father and your mother. If your father or your mother is doing something that breaks all of the other commandments, then you must break that one. You say, I cannot do this. If your father says blaspheme, then you shouldn't. If your father says kill, you shouldn't. But if you follow them because you think you're honoring them, you're actually dishonoring the rest of your community and don't do that. You have the power to stop it. Just because your parent did it doesn't mean you have the same fate. And that's where this, this beautiful power of autonomy, power of the self comes in that I think, um, I think I think we absolutely have to give ourselves that ability. Um, that and it has nothing to do with theodicy, which is what I which is what I hear you saying, Zach. The yeah. Judaism doesn't Judaism doesn't look at this from a the, theodicy lens. Why evil things happen in the world, right? And it's also, I mean, I'd be remiss if we didn't say that a lot of these sins of the father get passed down generations are highly situational. You know, there's a study that uh, they, this is of course very retroactive, but looked at the birth and death records of Civil War soldiers and looked at the Civil War soldiers who were prisoners of war versus those who were not and came home and then also had kids after the war. So the Prisoners of war during the Civil War were horribly mistreated. So they came home emaciated and on death's door and found that the next generation born after them died earlier and had more cardiac issues than those who were just soldiers who saw war but were not prisoners of war. So on average, those soldiers who experienced more trauma, the next generation died earlier. And now you can read backwards into that and you can say that that's because they, that those tra the trauma marked those men's sperm and it made them um, more sensitive. They made their children more sensitive to anxiety, for example. They were hyper alert and so their heart was always racing. They died of heart attacks at a young age. You can also look back at that and you can look at it from a sociological perspective and that if men came back from the war emaciated and broken, they probably were not able to work as hard or contribute as much to their family. So they probably were ended up being more poor. There were no big social safety nets back then. And so those children were probably malnourished because their dad wasn't able to work as much. And then that then perpetuated a system in, in that that 
maybe was partially genetic, but was also very social. And we need to make sure that we are not just making our genetics another scapegoat the way that we did with God punishing people before. Because then that lets us off the hook for not changing the world as it is. Because this is one of the huge focuses of the early church, like the pre-Roman early church, before we got in bed with empire for the first couple hundred years, was on caring for the widows and orphans, which were essentially the people who had no social safety net, who were not being taken care of, and so who were going to perpetuate systems of oppression by their existence. And there's a wonderful story. Did I, have I talked about St. Lawrence at all? He's one of my favorite dead Christians. Um, he was the deacon of Rome, and that means he was in charge of all the charity and the money. And the local ruler was like, hey, so there's this edict coming out that we're going to have to round up all the Christians and kill them. However, I know that you are in charge of the purse, so if you just give me the treasures of the church, I will give you a 10-day head start. You can get out of here and you can be safe. You just need to give me the treasures of the church, which I'm going to have anyway, So, but this way you and your family can get out of town. So he goes and he liquidates all of the assets of the church, and he gives away all of the gold to the widows and orphans, the poor of the city that are parts of the church. And then when the time comes, he brings all of them with him, all of the the, 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 the crippled, the, the poor, everyone, to that ruler and says, behold, the treasures of the church. Our God is far richer than your Caesar will ever be. And the guy was like, man, I do not take this kind of sass from stupid little Christians. And so he had him strapped to a gridiron and put over a fire because he's Roman and they're awful. And after a couple of minutes said to him, um, have you had enough? Uh, do you recant? And Lawrence said, I'm done on this side. Turn me over. <laughs> and <laughs> so instead of becoming like the patron saint of smart asses or something, he becomes the patron saint of chefs. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> And so I have a lovely St. Lawrence icon in my kitchen, and he's holding a gridiron with, like, some onions and garlic hanging off of it. And he's real happy, and he's like, hey, I'm the patron saint of chefs, when the story is that he was grilled on one. And um, wow. this is, <laughs> this is, this is why, I, uh, why I want to do Dead Christian Story Hour, because, man, the stories of these crazy dead Christians— but, like, that's the spirit of the early church is the, the disenfranchised, those that are being left behind, who generationally are being cursed by society. Those are the ones that we're here to serve, um, to bring them out of the generational cycles. And so we need to just make sure, no matter where we are on this genetic roller coaster of understanding, that we keep that in focus and we don't blame our, our DNA and we still make the changes that need to be made. Yeah, I think that you've like touched on what makes me just pause in, in conversations about epigenetics is that like regardless of how I just don't even know how to like describe what it is that I'm thinking. I, I'm thinking of like the theological explanations of epigenetics. H however, those theological interpretations either shame people for what they are experiencing or even like uplift and empower people for, you know, what they experience. Either way, I just get this sort of like, uh, like cringy, shrinking feeling because I don't like the like theological explanations of epigenetic phenomenon, whatever that even means, I'm still like not entirely sure. It just, I guess I just, I, I just worry that it's like such an easy, um, it's such an easy conversation to turn towards 
blame or like deterministic, uh, you know, like, well, I, like what what you both um, Zach and Rachel I think said especially early early in our episode like blaming your mom or blaming your grandparents for everything and and you know if you want to put the theological spin on it I don't know it just it, it just feels so like it makes me very uncomfortable like you were cursed and so God did this to you or like oh. It's, it feels really similar to the conversations that happen sometimes where like natural disasters happen to that community because they're sinful. Hmm. That's what I keep thinking about is like that just, it just makes me angry. <laughs> and so I, it doesn't really matter how generous or not generous we're being with like the theological interpretations of epigenetic phenomenon. I just, I don't know. My head is just kind of like swirling with it. But that's what I've been thinking about. And I think that what you just said, Zach, helped me um, sort of put together why I'm like, I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's that feeling that you just, you know, you got creepy crawlies and you just want to take a shower. Like, it's just, it's just icky for me when we add all of those layers in. It takes away individual control. It takes away our ability to look at the world and say, I have a role in this and I have a, I have a role to make it better, myself included in that world. And to, and it gives us the ability to ignore other like social conditions that people have no control over, like, you know, the wealth that you inherit or don't inherit. And, you know, it, like that I think is also like a significant part of it. It's like, is it, is it epigenetics or is it just like bad luck? I don't know. Are those the same thing? I don't know. <laughs> but I can also give you an, an, a heightened sense of empathy. If you understand that th- this person is acting beyond their control because of forces that were before their birth. And so it might help you to have a little bit more grace with people acting badly and then get past that to then find ways of ending that cycle. Because even even in electrified mice, we know that we can break the cycle. And we know that through our religious traditions and our, um, our social traditions, we know that we can break the cycle. It's, we've seen it done historically. We know how it can be done. We just have to have the willpower to do it. <laughs> <laughs> 